Thank you, Bert and Sally. Great job as always. Good morning, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1? Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. And if, uh, just to give you an update, a lot of you uh, know that uh, Ray's in the hospital, Ray Perkins. And uh, so uh, he's uh, at Crestwood, but he's, uh, they, they don't really don't know what's going on with him. I just got a text back from my text to see how he was doing. But he's not, he's, uh, he finally got a room yesterday after about 24 hours in the emergency room. And they finally fed him. So I talked to his, his son, Chris, but uh, uh, so he's kind of uncomfortable right now. And he says he's grouchy. So just keep him in prayer they, so they figure out what's going on. They've given him a battery of tests. So I'll let you know uh, if I hear anything uh, new to update. So keep him in your prayers. I know for those of you who already know about this, uh, thank you for keeping him in prayer. And I, I know he thanks you too as well. All right, so uh, keep praying prayer. So uh, also, uh, remember, we have our corporate prayer meeting at the end of the month on the 31st. falls on the last Wednesday of each month, which is the 31st. And we've been getting a great turnout for the prayer meetings, which is very good for the church that we do that. And uh, the early church did that, so we're imitating what they did under the apostles. And uh, also, we're uh, continuing our, st our study of the Day of the Lord on Wednesday evenings. And uh, so uh, uh, we're going to be uh, beginning, uh, looking at a study on Wednesday of the beginning of the 70 weeks prophecy and the end, the event that marks the end of the 69th week, the 483rd prophetic year, which I think you'll find very fascinating that if the Jews were waiting, uh, Jesus, they knew the prophecy of Daniel. Uh, the 70 weeks prophecy, they could have been, you know, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and Luke, and he says, if only you knew the day of your visitation. And he wept over Jerusalem because he knew they would reject him. And he said, you could have known the exact day from Daniel's prophecy that he'd walked into Jerusalem to present himself as the Messiah, right to the very day. And I have some, uh, some uh, scholars that, are, uh, uh, that have actually more information for me. They, I, I can't give it to you or tell you who it is because they haven't, they, they have a, in the process of getting the book published. So when that book gets published, I'll tell you some interesting to add to that, which is quite fascinating. Because the guy approached me, he, there's a guy named Dr. Harold Honer. He was a president, not president, but he was a professor at Dallas, and he did a lot of stuff on the chronology and, and on the, of the Lord's life, and uh, among other things, a great expositor of, script, of the scriptures. His, his commentaries on Ephesians are, are classics. And uh, so he went home to be with the Lord several years ago. This guy approached me, and uh, he, uh, he, he mentioned about this 70 weeks prophecy, how precise, precise it is. And so he said he had a thing that he had written, and he showed Honer, and Honer was like very excited about it, and Honer was an old man. So he sent it to me because he saw my stuff on Academia EDU regarding the 70 weeks. So uh, it's quite fascinating. So you'll, I think you'll really enjoy it on, on Wednesday, what we're going to be uh, talking about. So that's uh, uh, we're continuing our study of, the day, study of the Day of the Lord on Wednesdays. And also, of course, we're uh, in the third and final chapter of the book of Habakkuk today. Uh, and uh, so we'll, we're coming rapidly toward the end. We'll probably finish Habakkuk, I would think, in March, somewhere around March. And, uh, and then we'll go back to the uh, New Testament. And uh, I haven't decided yet what I'm going uh, to teach for the New Testament. I've been thinking about maybe doing First and, Thess First and Second Thessalonians back to back, which I think would be uh, put them to, uh, teach them together and then go back to the Old Testament and do two books back to back. So we'll, I'll keep you updated on that, what I decide. So uh, without uh, further ado, I don't think uh, well, the national championship game is who's got, who's got money on what? Who's, who's picking Michigan? Oh, 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 you don't want to feel like, you know, I'm the same way when the Patriots don't get in the Super Bowl. I can care less. 
They don't get in the Super Bowl, I don't care. So by the way, we might be the end of an era in New England. They're talking, this might be Bill Belichick's last game and uh, as a Patriots coach, and that's gonna be a sad day because I can't believe they're gonna hear the guy who's gonna six, just goes to tell you, you know, it just, what have you done for me today? You know, that guy that won six Super Bowls, how many AFC championship games, and now there's talk they're gonna let him go. And uh, again, they should have never let Tom Brady go. As I said before, that's like selling Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees uh, for no, no, Nanette, whatever it was, the player he was going to, they sold it for, whatever. Harry Frazee was the owner of the Red Sox. So, uh, anyways, so um, we'll see what happens with that. But, uh, anyways, it's just football. It's just sports, you know. And, uh, but, Kurt, really, you're not going to watch the National Championship game because of that, huh? Yeah. All right. Doesn't surprise me. All right, let's take a moment of silence. You all know what to do. I look around. Let's take a moment of silent prayer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us here in the state of Alabama, God's country, your country. <laughs> we just thank you for uh, the fact that we don't have snowstorms like they're having in New England today, and I thank you for bringing me down here and because uh, I really don't like shoveling snow, Lord. So I thank you so much and praise you, and for this con more importantly, for this congregation and uh, this beautiful building that we're in. And I just thank you for the leadership in our church and everyone that's here this morning that's a serious student of the Word of God. Father, we thank you for this study in the book of Habakkuk, and we pray that this will be a blessing to your people uh, today and also to the recordings that will be on our various websites and podcasts at a later date. Father, we thank you and praise you for uh, electing us and predestinating us to be conformed to the image of your Son uh, in eternity past and to be conformed to the image of your son as your children and also we thank you for the personal work of your son Jesus Christ we thank you for his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection and session at your right hand that has delivered us from eternal condemnation condemnation from the law personal sin enslavement to sin and Satan and his cosmic system and spiritual and physical death Father we know we have the victory because of that union identification with your son and so help us by the power of the Spirit to appropriate by faith that union identification with your Son and consider ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to you, dead to the cosmic system and alive to you and uh, bringing glory to you as we appropriate by faith the great power, uh, that great deliver power that's delivered us from these things. And we just thank you, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. And we pray he would do a mighty work through all of us here this morning through both myself as the communicator and those in the audience. We know uh, that your children, as your children, we can only understand the scriptures which are inspired by your spirit without, uh, with the Holy Spirit. Without him, I cannot do what you want me to do, and neither can your audience here, your children here today, do what you need them to do, which is to learn, understand, and apply in their daily lives what is being taught here from this pulpit. So I pray this morning that by the power of the spirit, you'll help me to bring forth your full counsel tonight with your, for your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. And also that your people 
that you'd work mightily and powerfully through them by the Spirit, help them to learn, understand, to concentrate, and to carefully consider the passages and principles we'll be noting here today, so that in order to make personal application, that they, we would also rejoice in your word. And, and we thank you for the, the great, uh, this great book and all the things that we've been learning uh, on our Wednesday classes and Sunday morning classes. And we just pray, Father, that we can... Uh, put these things into practice, what we're learning, and live our lives in a fashion that brings glory to you, living our lives in a manner consistent with what you've done for us as your children at justification, what you're going to do for us in the future as well when you give us a resurrection body and rewards for faithful service and experience the millennial reign and the new heavens and the new earth. We thank you for the great future that you've given to us, and despite the craziness in this world and in this country at this time, we know that you are sovereign over our, the affairs of mankind and the nations, and that we're in union with this, the one who is ruling the nations, your son Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. You should be at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, uh, this mighty chapter, this fantastic chapter that's often overlooked by uh, expositors of the Bible, theologians, and churches, uh, to much to uh, the detriment of these churches. And uh, this book is a great book, as, as we've been pointing out. Uh, it's a dialogue between Habakkuk, who was evidently a Levitical musician, and uh, he was uh, having a dialogue with God, and it all started off, as we saw in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses three and four, complaining about the apostasy in his own nation, and then God returns a response to him in verses five through, uh, 12 of that, uh, five through 11 of that chapter, saying that uh, I'm going to use the Babylonians to uh, discipline your people. And then Habakkuk comes right back in verses 12 through 17, responding to that choice, saying, I don't like it. So God says in chapter two that, uh, well, I know you don't like it, but guess what? I'm going to judge Babylon as well. And that was fulfilled in history through the Medo-Persian Empire according to the prophecies of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 and 7, and also other places. So we see that, uh, that we get to chapter 3. Now we have the divine warrior psalm. There's other things going on in the, in the chapter, at the very end of the chapter. Uh, 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 Habakkuk expresses his great uh, faith uh, that God <clears throat> will uh, take care of him and the, and the, the faithful remnant in Judah. Uh, during this time where he's going to use the nation of Babylon to discipline his people and his nation. And they went into, and they were dis, uh, went into exile for 70 years, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. So he expresses his great faith at the end of the chapter that uh, God will take care of, uh, of the, this faithful remnant. But prior to that, we, uh, we started uh, looking at the verses 3 through uh, 3 through uh, 15, which contains, which is very interesting. We went over the fact that uh, many exposes look verses 3 through 15, which they call the divine, divine warrior psalm, as uh, historical, talking about the mighty acts of God in the Old Testament, like with the Exodus generation, delivering them from slave, enslavement to uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. But uh, we pointed out in great detail, we spent a whole class, noting that it's actually prophetic. It's actually eschatological, because many of the things that are being uh, asserted in this divine warrior psalm have never been fulfilled in history by the Lord. But they, if you look at a comparison of the book of Revelation and other passages like Zechariah 12 and 14 and Habakkuk and uh, uh, Haggai, excuse me, chapter 2, as we'll look at today, a book that we studied in the, in the past, uh, we see that this is uh, prophetic, clearly, but alluding to at times 
times these mighty acts of God in the Old Testament. And so uh, this divine warrior psalm, you see this, this motive throughout the Bible. In fact, it ends with the divine, the divine warrior psalm goes all the way to the book of Revelation. And we'll be looking in Revelation today uh, as well. And uh, because this, this divine warrior psalm, Jesus Christ is the greatest commander of all history. He's the greatest warrior. And what's interesting is when he comes back at a second advent, he's doing all the killing. It's uh, quite interesting. So he comes back with the elect angels, he comes back with the tribulational martyrs that are in resurrection bodies, Old Testament saints in resurrection bodies, and the church in a resurrection body. So the whole place, we orbit the earth, and he lands on the Mount of Olives, and then he wages war against his enemy, enemies, and we'll see in this same chapter, Divine Warrior Psalm, we actually have a discussion, uh, actually a detail, of what Jesus Christ will do to the Antichrist when he comes back at a second advent. So uh, this is quite fascinating. And we look at Isaiah 63. You know, he, he comes, lands on the Mount of Olives, and he makes his way down into what we call the kingdom of Jordan, which was known as Edom then. And he, you know, the, he talks about Isaiah 63, this blood on his garments. And uh, where'd you get this blood? He said, for my enemies. So what's interesting is here's Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago at Calvary, dying for the sins of the world. Every sin in human history, past, present, and future, was imputed or credited to Christ, and he had to suffer the consequences for every sin ever committed by a member of the human race, past, present, and future, on the cross of Calvary. He had to do that. That's why he, had a, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned by the Father, which was expressing the Father's wrath. That's what we should have experienced forever in the lake of fire. And also he suffered the crucifixion, the torture, the physical torture of the crucifixion, and something that we deserved. And that so basically he was experiencing the whole thing of hell, eternal condemnation, the wrath of God on the cross so that nobody would face it forever in like a fire. Now here he comes back. If you don't trust in him as Savior, and when you have faith in Jesus at justification, you appropriate that great deliverance from God's wrath among, as well as enslavement to sin and Satan in his cosmic system and spiritual and physical death as we pointed out in the prayer. But uh, we see also uh, that uh, if you don't do that, he's going to come back and, he is, and he's going to express his righteous indignation, his wrath. Righteous indignation means that Jesus Christ is justified in being angry at sinners. He is holy, and the human race is not. And there's only one way to avoid the wrath of God, John 3, 36, is through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you don't want to kiss the Son by trusting in Him and bow to Him by having faith in Him, then you're going to have to face His wrath, just like the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan and the fallen angels are going to have to experience. But that was not God's choice for them. That's going to be their choice. They have volitional responsibility, men and angels, and they have to make a decision. Which side are you on? And so we've chosen the side that's the victorious side and the, and the correct side, and we didn't earn it or deserve it. We're not better than anybody else. The only reason why you and I will be spending all of eternity worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father by the Spirit throughout eternity into the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever is because of the merits of the object of her faith, Jesus Christ. He gets all the glory, and he, he's the, the top celebrity in Christianity who we worship in this church. So Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6 is what we'll be looking at in detail today, not only in the first session, but also in the second session, and actually in the first session next Sunday before we move on to verse 7. And the reason why that is is because of the content that's found in this verse. It's a fascinating 
uh, chapter, uh, fascinating verse, which talks a lot about the second advent and what's going to go on. And it's going to connect us to passages in Haggai in the first session, Haggai chapter 2 that we studied. So we're going to benefit from our study of Haggai. Now we're in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. And then we're going to be in the second session where we're going into Revelation in Zechariah 14. So there's a lot of things we're going to be talking about uh, in, with regards to the second advent in these studies today, this morning, and of course next Sunday. And on until we finish the book. So let's look at ha- that introduction out of the way. Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 3. Look at verse 1. We, as we usually do, we'll read the whole chapter before we look at the verse that we're studying. And uh, in order to get the proper context, when we, uh, to study the, the verse in its proper context, uh, that's a principle of hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting the Bible. So we just don't interpret the Bible off the top of our head. Uh, we have rules. And uh, you know, when you read an email or you read a, a poem or whatever, you know the language, okay, and how it works. And so there's rules to language. And so you know, when your boss says, "All right, I'm, 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 you're, you're, we're laying you off," okay, blah blah blah. You, well, when you're interpreting that, you say, "Oh, laying me off. Maybe he's going to let me lay down for a break." Something like that. No, you know he means you're done. You're out. So there's not, it's not just what you want it to say, the text. The text will t- determine what it's saying. The author's going to determine what, what he, uh, his intent was, and that's up to the interpreter, us, the reader, to pay attention to what the, the writer is saying. So God, remember this. God, people say, oh, is the Bible's how to interpret it. God used human beings to communicate his full counsel to p- human beings. So he, he, when God, if God could create the time, matter, space, continuum, I think he can use human beings in scripture to communicate his full counsel to the human race. I think if he's able to do everything with just the word, I think he can do that too. So I don't think God, God uh, speaks to, in order to be understood. You know, some guy emailed me the other day about my, the thing on the 70 weeks prophecy. He talked about some hidden stuff. I said, there's no hidden stuff there. I say, you mean, I mean, there's some things that we don't know yet that are going to be fulfilled, but quite frankly, what you're talking about, there's none of that stuff going on in hidden signs and all the scripture. And I was like, that's just for people who don't, are lazy and don't want to study the scripture and learn these things. No, the Bible was written to be understood by human beings. God's not hiding anything, especially from the church, he's not hiding anything. We have the spirit, okay? Christ is the, Christ is the fulfillment of scripture. Okay, so we have, we're in union with him. We have the spirit so we can understand the things that God has freely given to us. So Habakkuk chapter three, verse one says a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shagayana. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. I renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. And wrath, remember mercy. Mercy toward the faithful remnant. Wrath toward the unfaithful. God came, now here's the beginning of the, the, the divine warrior psalm. It's, it's an action, it's a, remember, it's a lyrics to a song. We lost the music, it's gone to history. Lyrics to a song, it's poet, it's poetry. We can call it poetic prophecy is what it is, okay? Verse three, God came from Teman, the holy one from Mount Paran, Silla. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Where were you? Were you angry, excuse me, with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? 
You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows, Selah. You split the river, the earth with rivers, and the mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, and the deep roared and lifted its ways on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot, Selah. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Verse 16. Now we uh, transition from that divine warrior psalm to the expression of Habakkuk's faith in light of the imminent invasion of the Babylonians of the southern kingdom of Judah. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. You will, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us, Babylon. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That's faith, and that's someone who doesn't need great circumstances, uh, prosperity to be rejoicing in the Lord and has faith in the Lord. He's worshiping God right here, knowing that God has everything in control, and despite the fact that his nation is about to be defeated at the hands of a wicked nation, pagan nation, and his, the whole economy, in fact, is going to be gone, the nation, will, at the fabric of the nation is destroyed, and they're deported to Babylon for 70 years, He's not going to sit there and be uh, in depression about it. He knows God's working on his purpose for his nation and the nations of the world, including Babylon. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. So you know he's a musician and he's a good lyricist. We don't know the, the, the music he, he used, but uh, we know this is lyrics to a song. So he's a Levitical priest, more than likely, because of uh, the music he wrote for the temple worship. What's interesting, the temple would be destroyed in uh, 586 BC. So this would be sung in Zerubbabel's temple. Remember we studied Haggai, a book we'll be touching upon today in the first session. Haggai was, records the, the completion of the temple. Okay, so that this song would be sung in the temple. It was sung in the Herod's temple when Zerubbabel's uh, temple was expanded by Herod. When Jesus walked into the temple, there was that song that would be sung. Okay, it's quite interesting. And little did the pe many people know that that so divine warrior song that was sung in Herod's, Herod's temple was, in fact, about the Lord Jesus Christ who stood before them all. As the Lamb of God who takes away the, the, uh, the sins of the word, a sins of the world, and little did they know he's the Lion of Judah, that is going to uh, crush his enemies, establish the kingdom of God on earth, the kingdom that they were waiting for in Jesus' day, but they would not accept the king on his terms. They wanted a king that was more like to their liking, much like people today. They wanted Jesus that uh, you know uh, that has been uh, sanitized. They don't want a Jesus of the Bible. They want a Jesus that somebody, somebody, a Jesus of their own creation. Of course, we can't have that. So Habakkuk chapter 3, let me give you my translation of verses 3 through 6. God will travel from Teman, then the Holy One will travel from Mount Paran, Selah. His majesty will cover the heavens so that his praise will certainly fill the earth. In fact, his splendor will be like lightning. 
Flashing rays of light will come from his hand on his behalf. Indeed, there it covers his strength. Plague will proceed from his presence. Correspondingly, pestilence will follow at his feet. He will stand, verse 6, he will stand while he causes the earth to shake. He will look while he causes the citizens of the nations to tremble in fear, while the ancient mountains will disintegrate. The primeval hills will be flattened. And then it says, with a little bit of interpretive issue with this last statement, ancient processions assist him. That speaks of the elect angels that will accompany the Lord Jesus at his second advent. And what they do is they remove, uh, if you look at the sheep and goats passage in Matthew 25, every non-believer that survives the events of the tribulation period in the second advent are removed from the face of the earth and they're deposited in torments, a compartment of Hades, and then finally they go to, they're transported to the white, great white throne judgment and the lake of fire from there when their sentence is executed with Satan and the fallen angels. So as we noted in our study of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 20, is a prayer which the prophet Habakkuk offered up to the, to the, to the God of Israel, which he's directed to be sung in the temple as part of the worship of the God of Israel, Jesus Christ. We also noted in verses 3 through 5, that Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, is not only prophetic, referring to the events of the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ, but also are alluding to the mighty acts of God, which he performed on behalf of the nation of Israel in past history, such as during Israel's exodus from Egypt under Moses. Now, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6, as we can see from my translation and your NIV translation, contains seven statements. And these seven statements actually form five prophetic uh, statements. So there's seven statements, but five uh, prophetic statements are being formed from these seven statements. Now, as we also noted in our study of Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, I believe in an eschatological uh, interpretation of these verses, verses 3 through 15, in the sense that I interpret these verses as being fulfilled in the future, during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ. Now, I want to go, we're doing this study of the 70 weeks in our Day of the Lord series, right in the middle of it. And so I want to just give you the chart I've been using, and I showed it here during the Habakkuk series. Habakkuk, I create, Habakkuk a chart I created from in the past. But it's a chart of the 70 weeks of Daniel. So I want, to, I want you to understand what we're studying here in verses 3 through 15 and emphasize it. Is it going to take, it's going to take place during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ. So what is that? Well, Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy is actually 490 prophetic years. And so 70 weeks, according to this prophecy, is 490 prophetic years. A week is seven years in this prophecy. That's according to the Jewish reckoning of time, which is a 360-day calendar. They didn't have the calendar we have uh, with a 365.25-day uh, calendar. So this, as we'll see this uh, Wednesday, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in, in, by Artaxerxes Longamanus in 444 B.C. begins the 70 weeks prophecy. That's very important because then you'll know the date. By knowing that starting date, you'll know the day, the, you can count the days that Christ will come in, the Messiah, and present himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. And Jesus references this. So we'll talk about that this Wednesday. So the, it, the, there's four decrees, as we'll see on Wednesday, but one is the one that fits the bill because this is the story of Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah? He's a part of this whole thing. So he was a part of that Artaxerxes longing of us, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So that starts the 70 weeks prophecy. Now, there's 483 
prophetic years, or 69 weeks, that have already been fulfilled in history. They run contiguous with each other, consecutively. There's no break in between, like there is between the end of the 69th week and the 70th week, a period that we're in right now the during the church age. So we see that there's 49 years, equivalent to seven weeks, that is begins, okay? So that goes from the decree to rebuild, to rebuild Jerusalem, 444 BC, by Artaxerxes Longomanus. Nehemiah is a part of that, Nehemiah 2. It runs all the way to the completion of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So that's 49 years, seven weeks in the prophecy. Then on top of that is another 62 weeks, equivalent to 434 years. That ends with Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. If only you knew the day of your visitation. And as I said in the, before the opening prayer, and you'll see this, this Wednesday, you'll, they, if you, if they knew the prophecy when it began they would have been able to count the exact day right on the button when Christ walked in to Jerusalem to present himself. They would have known he was the Messiah. If those scribes and Pharisees and his disciples had studied this prophecy, they would have known the exact day the Messiah came in to Jerusalem. Jesus did. He knew exactly, everything was on God's timing, which is going to tell you something about God's timing. It's impeccable. <laughs> okay? You can't beat God's timing. So it's better to go on God's timing rather than your own timing. And if you don't like to do that, guess what? God will teach you, the, like, any, like the rest of us who have been walking with the Lord any length of time, if you don't want to learn the easy way, he'll teach you the hard way. So the better way is just to accept what he says and stop fighting him. So we see that Christ's triumphal entry, that ended 483 prophetic years, equivalent to uh, 69 weeks. Now, the 70th week has yet to begin. And, that's, and Daniel 9.27 talks about the 70th week. That's the tribulation period. That has not taken place yet because Antichrist has not appeared on the pages of history. And this 70th week doesn't begin till he makes a treaty with Israel. There's no ruler, pagan ruler, or Roman he's going to be, who's ever done this within the nation of Israel and, and had a treaty, established a treaty with her. It's yet future. Now that can't take place until the church is gone. Paul makes that clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 through, uh, two through uh, 1 through 12. And so he says the, the restraint of the Holy Spirit who dwells the church must be removed at the rapture in order for him to manifest himself. So we're waiting for that to happen, the rapture to trigger this. Now, in, on Daniel 9.26 talks about the interval between the conclusion of the 69th week and the, begin, and the beginning, uh, before the beginning of the 70th week. So right now, this is stretched for quite a while, over 2,000 years, okay? And the church age is in the middle of this period, okay? So there's three events that have been fulfilled literally in history in Daniel 9.26. The crucifixion of Christ, okay? And also you, you have, not only the crucifixion of Christ, but you have the, the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D., Okay? So, hold your place. Let's look at Daniel 9.24. We'll briefly go there. Daniel 9.24. Why am I going to this passage? Because I'm telling you what we're reading in Daniel 9, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. In fact, the whole Divine Warrior Psalm is taking place during the 70th week, okay? And the second advent of Christ, which ends the 70th week. So, look at Daniel 9.24. Now, you, some of you who have the notes, you'll notice, if you haven't noticed already, that my notes are kind of like an outline. 
Okay, it keeps me on track, okay? But so when people get the notes and they think they, they've, heard, they've got the lesson that I taught, are you kidding me? There's only, I have a, a, a program, that I, have the, 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 I have like five pages of notes, four in the second one, that's like, like 10, 15 minutes tops. The rest is coming out of here. Out of my, out of where the Holy Spirit's telling me to, to go. So if you don't get to the class, the notes are not really going to, the notes give you an outline, but the notes are not going to tell you really what the Spirit said in the, in the lesson when I, when, with me behind the pulpit. So keep that in mind. So Daniel 9.24, 77s are decreed for your people, speaking to J Daniel who's a Jew, and your holy city, that would be Jerusalem, to finish transgression, we studied this last Wednesday, the sixfold purpose, to finish transgression, the corporate sin of Israel, to put an end to the corporate sin of Israel, to atone for their wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, speaking of the millennial reign, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That's the purpose for the 70 weeks. Now, verse 25, it says, no one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens, there's your 49 years, prophetic years, and 62 sevens, 434 prophetic years. It will be rebuilt, Jerusalem will, with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. The book of Nehemiah records this. Now, that decree is what we're looking here on the board right here that begins the 70 weeks prophecy, right? Now, it says in verse 26, it says uh, at verse 26, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. That's the crucifixion of the Messiah. Actually, the whole Hebrew expression there means he was executed as a criminal and will have nothing. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who are the people that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple? The Romans in 70 AD. Everybody knows that. So the ruler who is to come, all right, who's talked about in verse 27 making a treaty with Israel, he's got to be a Roman, okay? Then it says, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and the desolations have been decreed. So this is verse 26, verse 25, have all been fulfilled in minute detail. The first... 69 weeks, 483 prophetic years have been fulfilled in history of this prophecy. And by the way, this prophecy is actually describing the discipline of the nation of Israel. Why has Israel been under such duress like no other people, another nation in history? Because they're under discipline from God. They would, to whom much is given, much is required. They had the covenants of promise, the four unconditional covenants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Abrahamic, Davidic, Palestinian, new covenants. They would receive the temple worship. They received the scriptures. The, this book is a, the Bible is a Jewish book. And also the Messiah would come from her. So that's why, because she crucified her Messiah, the majority did, that's why she's been under the, the discipline she's been under. And no other group of people has been, has been persecuted like her. And it's a part of their discipline. Okay? And the discipline will end at the second advent of Christ. So, look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He, who's that? The ruler of the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the city, who's going to come, and it'll be during the seventh, uh, 70th week. He's the guy. He's going to be a Roman dictator. Now, I have to say this all the time. People go, well, Rome's not that. I don't believe this, Billy. Wait a minute, stop. If you talked to somebody 200 years ago, 300 years ago, and said these ragtag colonies, 13 colonies, would be the greatest superpower of all time, 
the United States of America, that were uh, basically under the, 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 the authority of the British Empire, which was the superpower of the world. The sun never set on the Union Jack. Where's Britain now? And what are those 13 colonies now? Could you please tell me? They became superpower. We're the greatest superpower that's ever walked the face of this earth. Babylon was just a bunch of tribes. Look what happened to them. Medo-Persia, same way. Alexander's Greece. Alexander's Greece, Grecian Empire, could never get together. They were always fighting until Philip, Alexander's father, came along. And he kind of, then they assassinated him, but he was able to get the, the Greeks together, and Alexander was able to really do it. They were ragtag tribes. Rome was too. Look at the history of Rome. Read Gooden's history of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Read that. I've read so much stuff on the Roman Empire. They were nothing when they first started. So, what we have is the Roman Empire disintegrated from within and became East and West. You know, they were uh, a uh, broken apart. Okay, the Holy Roman Empire. Okay, the, the, the Empire of the East, the Empire in the West. We see this in the, with regards to the Reformation that we studied with the uh, canonicity and whatnot. So we see that Rome. Basically, you ever hear the story of Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. No one could put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Well, guess what? Because God says so, Humpty Dumpty, the Roman Empire, will come back together again. Hitler was trying to bring it back. Napoleon was trying to bring it back. Couldn't get it together. Why? It wasn't time. But there's going to come a day, once the church is gone, that's going to happen. So, verse 27. It's not, nothing in history has ever down to the preterists who think this, the, this, the, all the, the revelation and, and this has all been fulfilled in the first century. Nothing in the first century comes close to this fulfilling this. He will confirm the Antichrist, a covenant with the many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. So what's that? If you look at the chart, here's the 70th week. Antichrist makes the treaty. Okay? And then it's three and a half years 1260 days, according to the Jewish reckoning of time, 360 day calendar, and in the middle of this, he breaks the treaty. He desecrates the temple. Now, this passage says in your translation, and on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination. That's actually in the plural in the Hebrew. That causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So there's two abominations, as we pointed out. Antichrist, Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. He says, the Antichrist will sit down and declare himself as God. He'll, he'll demand the worship of the world in the rebuilt Jewish temple. Okay, it's not been built yet. They got the plans and all that stuff ready to go. Okay, now, he does that. There's another one that Jesus talks about, another abomination. Revelation 13 talks about this, the false prophet who promote the worship of the Antichrist, like the Holy Spirit promotes the worship of Jesus Christ will set up an image to the Antichrist and make it come alive. And that is standing in the, in the holy place. Jesus says in Matthew 24, when you see that standing, not him sitting on the, the, between the, the wings of the cherubim and the Ark, Ark of the Covenant, when you see that standing, that image of the Antichrist, the Jews are to leave, disperse one more time in their history, the final time. So that is when the Armageddon campaign starts. When we get into this series of the Day of the Lord, we're talking about the Armageddon campaign. It's not, Armageddon is not a pitched battle like Waterloo, okay? This is a campaign. It's like World War II, almost in its like three and a half years. And it ends with the second advent of Christ, okay? So there's a, the 70th week is broken up into two sections, two three and a half year sections. The first three and a half years, as, as the colonel used to say, is a cold war, okay? There's rumors of war, okay? 
and there's, they're calling peace, peace, because the Antichrist is going to be able to probably solve the Arab-Israeli thing. Probably that's the reason why they're going to get the temple built. You know, remember, don't remember, don't remember, the Islamic religion, they believe that Jesus is a prophet. And I've had conversations with people who are Islamic, and I said, really, I know you, you believe he's a prophet. Why don't you believe what he says when no one comes to the Father except through him? They have nothing to say about that. So I believe he's going to be able to get these guys to get that temple. They're going to get their temple built. And so, for, so we see here that the Armageddon campaign is when we have all the seven seal trumpet and bull judgments poured out upon the world, recorded in Revelation 6 to 18. Chapter 19 and 20 talks about the second advent when Christ comes back to end it all. And that is what we're talking about in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. And that's what we'll be talking about today in Habakkuk 3, 6. This particular period and this particular day, the second advent of Christ, there'll be no day like it in history because it's for a, representing a unique person, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the unique theanthropic person of history, as Louis Sperry Schaefer said, first president of Dallas Theological Seminary. So that is the period that we're looking at in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, the setting. So go back there to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. So, if you look at my translation on the board of Habakkuk 3.6, he, and this is the Lord, will stand while he causes the earth to shake. He will look while he causes the citizens of the nation to tremble in fear while the ancient mountains disintegrate. The primeval hills will be flattened. Ancient processions, the angels, elect angels, assist him. So, we have here in Habakkuk 3.6, each of the five prophetic statements recorded in this verse are prophetic of the second advent. So this verse is all about the second advent. Remember, the second advent and the rapture are two different things. Okay? The rapture is talked about, it's a mystery. It's when the church gets its resurrection body. How do we know it's a mystery? 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58 speaks of the resurrection of Christ, of resurrection of the church. That's, when the, that's the rapture, okay? And so he says it's a mystery. What does that mean? It's a divine secret. Musterion is the word. It's not known to Old Testament saints of the past. But it's been revealed by the Spirit through the apostles and their teaching. This is now in our New Testament. That's what we call the mystery doctrine of the church age. Now listen. 1 Corinthians 15, 52-58 speaks of the resurrection of the church, the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 talks about the timing of the rapture, meaning the dead in Christ will rise first, and then the split second after that is that those who are alive on the earth at the time of the rapture will get their resurrection bodies, and thus will always be with the Lord. The Lord never touches the earth as he does in the second advent. The rapture is only visible to the church, not to the world. They're going to have to explain what happened, okay, which I think... They're already getting the world ready for that anyways with the movies and all kinds of stuff. And you know, that when we're gone, then the devil can get have his way, okay? We're, we're mucking up the waters, okay? The other, the other passage, we talk about the rapture. Jesus first talks about it in his upper room discourse in John 14, 1 through 3. Not once does he talk about touching the earth. He comes back to take them back to his father's house. Here's the other reason these are for the, with the rapture. The rapture actually is following the Jewish custom of marriage, where they would be engaged. You know, Paul talks about being, us being engaged to Christ, right, with Corinthians. 
And then when the when he then in, in the in the marriage, the Jewish marriage, the bridegroom would come at an hour the bride didn't know, and take her back to his father's house to consummate the marriage. I know that sounds kind of weird, but yes, that's what they're going to do. So that was the Jewish custom marriage. So Jesus takes us, his bride, back to his father's house to consummate the marriage. Now the wedding supper that's talked about in scripture, that is the millennial reign. That's a long supper for a thousand years. But guess what? I had some people saying, oh, we're really going to eat and stuff and drink? Oh, yes, the finest wine. Remember who, remember who created wine? Jesus. Okay? And if you're, if you're an alcoholic, you'll be able to drink the wine and not get drunk because you'll be in resurrection body. And if you, if you love food, okay, don't worry. If you're overweight, you won't overeat because you won't have a sin nature anymore. Okay? You'll have a perfect body, immortal body, but yes, we'll be eating and drinking. In fact, when he did the Lord's Supper, he says, I, can't, I won't eat, uh, eat this till we uh, eat it, uh, drink, it, uh, drink this cup until I uh, drink, uh, drink it with you in the kingdom. Okay? So it's going to be a fantastic time. We're going to have great music. And by the way, the music that will be played during the millennial reign of Christ will be the music that honored Jesus Christ. And not the Beatles, and not Jimi Hendrix, and not uh, Taylor Swift. Sorry, Swifties, okay? You're not going to have any, unless he starts writing songs about Jesus. The biggest hits in heaven are the ones that are sung in the churches and around the world, America, that honor Jesus Christ. How's that? That's the truth, okay? So... One of my songs, my, when I wrote the right song, I always go, oh, this one has just came out. It's, top, it's in the top 10 in heaven right now. It's like, it's, they had a good time with that. But that's the truth. Only the music that honored Jesus Christ, that's the music of the, of the, of the uh, millennial reign. So we have here, the rapture is also talked about, and uh, uh, when we talk about, so we have 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It's talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where we're deli it delivers us from the wrath to come. During the tribulation period. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 says that. Remember, Jesus is not a wife beater. Well, he wouldn't let his bride go through the tribulation period. That's for the unbelievers. To get them to see their need for him. And for judgment for those who won't see their need for him. The second advent is visible to the whole world. Revelation 1, 7. Every eye shall see him. He will, he will touch the Mount of Olives from which he ascended. In fact, the angels were saying that to the apostles in Acts 1 when Jesus ascended into heaven. They're up there with a, you know, their jaws dropped, right? And the angels go, hey, this same, what are you looking at? The same Jesus will come back to the same place. That's the Mount of Olives. It's there today. It hasn't moved, okay? But at the second advent, as we'll see, it's going to move. It's going to be change the whole topography of the earth when Christ lands on the earth bodily at a second advent. And it will change the whole topography of Jerusalem and raising her up. Right now she's embedded in the hills. The whole earth will be dramatically changed. So all your homes, all your cars, all your, you know, all that stuff is gonzo, baby. He's going to purge this place. This is the place where the devil rules and sin is everywhere. Don't hang too closely onto your stuff, possessions, because it's all going, okay? That's why your treasures should be in heaven, that's what's most important because God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to purge this earth of sin and evil. So we see there that Habakkuk chapter uh, 3, verse 6, it says, again, he will stand while he causes the earth to shake. He will look while he causes the citizens of the nations to tremble in fear while the ancient mountains will disintegrate. 
and the primeval hills will be flattened. Ancient processions assist him. So we have five prophetic statements recorded in this verse all about the second advent to Christ. They describe what will take place when Jesus Christ returns to planet Earth at his second advent to establish his millennial reign on the earth. Now the first and second statements in verse 6 form the first prophetic statement. Remember I told you, seven statements, five forming five prophetic statements. So the first two form one, the first. Now the first prophetic, uh, the first statement we have here in this verse asserts that the God of Israel, the Holy One, Jesus Christ, will stand while the second will take place at the same time as the second statement, which asserts that he will cause the earth to shake. So if you compare the first two statements in the verse, the first and second statements assert that Jesus Christ will stand while causing the earth to shake at his second advent, which will take place again when the Lord descends from heaven and lands on the Mount of Olives, which will result in a massive earthquake, according to Zechariah 14. So let's go to Zechariah chapter 14. Look at verse 1, please. Zechariah 14.1. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, one of the great chapters of the Bible. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Toward the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 14.1, a day of the Lord is coming. This is eschatological. Remember we studied in our day of the Lord series, opening it up. There are some day of the Lord prophecies that have been fulfilled in history already. And we noted those. There are many, many more to come that are related to the tribulation period, the 70th week, the second advent, the millennial reign, and the new heavens and the new earth, which Peter alludes to in 2 Peter chapter 3. So a day of the Lord is coming. That's the, the language there in the, in the Hebrew is it's imminent. Okay? Now it is, because as I said before, the day of the Lord can't take place till the church has been raptured. Okay? Paul talks about this again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So that's imminent. That means it could happen at any time. Nobody has a date on the rapture. False teachers do that and they look foolish. Okay? And Christians look foolish and, not, and ignorant of their Bible when they believe in date setting for the rapture. There's no date setting. It's imminent, meaning it can happen at any time. And why does he do that? Because he wants to keep us on our toes. Live in light of the... So a team that lives with a sense of urgency, football team, baseball team, whatever, a military, you gotta, you gotta be on your toes, alert. That's what it causes us to be. Keeps short account, causes us to uh, motivate us to keep short accounts with God. We'll, we'll think twice. If we think about the rapture, it could happen at any moment, and it could, it will, it will, it'll be a deterrent to sinning. Try it sometime, okay? Just think about, oh, I'm going to go home with Susie Q or Billy Bob tonight. Oh, yeah. And the, what if the Lord comes home tonight while well, you're with silly Susie Q's and Billy Bob, okay? You're not going to be, uh, you'll be looking embarrassed. It's going to be embarrassed. Oops. All right? We don't want that to happen, okay? None of us. So, Zechariah 14, 1. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem, the Armageddon campaign, to fight against it. And this goes, it's interesting, I've said this several times before, and it hasn't changed, I'm sure. But the Northwoods documents, which were released because of the, 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 the demand for the uh, uh, information about the Kennedy assassination, the Northridge documents talk about the, the Joint Chiefs in, this, in the Cold War 
during Kennedy's administration and Eisenhower's and Johnson, they, the general war is what they called nuclear war, okay? World war. They said their game plan was that if there was good, the next war, the next major war, world war, it will start in Jerusalem, in, in Israel. That's what they said, okay? And it almost happened in 67, when they, six, uh, the seven, uh, six day war, and they capped, the Jews captured the Temple Mount. Oh my God, Russia and the United States almost went to war over that. That's why you, they made a deal. That's why the Jews can't pray up on the Temple Mount. There's a sign, they say you get arrested, okay? So, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The, it how's it, well, think about this. All the nations at that time, and they could be the nations that we know now, because if the rapture is today, there you go, or in our generation, there you go. So listen, they're making their plans for war. They're making their plans and making their policy decisions in every nation around the world, including our own, right? We're making all our plans, okay? Nations make their plans. At the end of the day, if it, they, they, they have intention to destroy Jerusalem, Israel, okay? They want to destroy, the Antichrist wants to reign and destroy the Jews. He wants to rule the world, okay? And then China's going to come out across the dried up Euphrates River, Revelation 16, or the other armies of the east, and they're going to converge on this area, okay? That little, little piece of ground, right? That's God let them make their decisions, even though those decisions were against his will to do this. He's already figured it into his plan. Good, do it. Guess what? It's going to play right into my hands to destroy y'all. Okay? So he says, I, gather, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet, okay? This is not metaphorical. This is his feet. Acts 1 talks about this. He will, the angel said he'll come back. Just like he ascended, he'll come back in the same way. He, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Can you just imagine what that's going to look like? Well, we're going to be behind him, right? I mean, you just can imagine what we're about to see. And we're on the other side. We're, the, his, we're, we're behind him. <laughs> we, we're not going to be in front of him. That's going to be absolutely incredible. And they're just going to take the, the, the Chinese and the Russian, the Chinese and the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the United States of Europe and the Antichrist. They're going to turn their weapons from each other and point them at him. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think the Lord looks like Clint Eastwood, but I could do this. I could see him doing the Clint Eastwood thing. We're just a look. Make my day, punk. You know? I don't know what the Lord's going to say. He's probably not going to say anything. He's just going to destroy him. I don't know. It will be interesting to see if he says anything. But on that, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west. From what? Obviously an earthquake, which Revelation talks about. Forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You, the Jews at the time, will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. That would be us, the angels, elect angels, tribulational martyrs in a resurrection body, Old Testament saints in a resurrection body, the church in a resurrection body. On that day, the second advent, there will be no light, no cold or frost, because we're going to light the place up and heat the place up. All of us together with the Lord. It will be a unique day for a unique person, Jesus Christ. It's his day. 
without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, the Mediterranean, in summer and winter. Everything's changed. The Lord will be king over all the whole, over the whole earth, millennial reign. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. Okay? That's the and then it goes on to say in verse 10, the whole land from Giba to Rimen, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remained in its place. Raised up, as I said earlier. Okay? All the nations will flow to her. Okay? From the Benjamin Gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the Tower of Hananel to the wine, royal wine presses, it will be inhabited, and never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure for the first time in its history because it's, it's, her king is finally in her to protect her. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Spielberg took this scene from the Bible, I think. You know, when, they just, when, they, when the Ark of the Covenant was open or something and they all, their eyes rotted in their head, that's where he got it from. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. The first great is the lost ark. Okay? On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of the other and they will attack each other. Friendly fire. Isn't that what happened in the, in the, in the, with Gideon? In the book of Judges? Judges 6, 7, 8, and 9? Friendly fire. God does that a lot in the Old Testament. Let them kill each other. I'll just show up and scare the living daylights out of them and they'll all just shoot over, you know, all over the place. Okay? Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. It says, the wealth of the surrounding nations will be collected great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and the mules, camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps of the enemy. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year during the millennial reign to worship Jesus, the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And then it says, if any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty will have... Uh, have no rain. They will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and all the punishment of the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. That's during the millennial reign. So, and then it says in verse 20 and 21, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses during the millennial reign. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every part in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, Judah, will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there'll no, be, no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Go back to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. We need to close. So, if you look at this slide on the board, when the Lord lands on the Mount of Olives at his second advent to personally and bodily deal with his enemies and those of his people, the Jews. The Mount of Olives, dislodged by a severe and terrible earthquake, will dissolve into an exceedingly great valley. So therefore, there'll be a vast alteration of the geography in Jerusalem, as we pointed out, in order that it might be the center of blessing to the world during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, let's go. I, sorry, but you don't have to go hold back. I, I meant to send you to Haggai. Go now to Haggai chapter 2, verse 1, a book we studied in detail. I want to show you something here that corresponds to what we're reading about in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 6. So Haggai chapter 2, verse 1, please. Because this chapter, if you recall, talks about the Lord shaking the heavens and the earth. Okay? Haggai 2, 1. 
Haggai chapter 2, verse 1, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Talking about Zerubbabel's temple that they were working on. But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you, the people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the desired of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. So, the Lord's assertion in Haggai 2.6, that once again, in a little while, he indeed is about to cause the stellar universe, the earth's atmosphere and the earth itself, and its various bodies of water and dry land to shake, implies the Lord has done this before. We studied this. The context would indicate that he did this previously for the Exodus generation, if you recall. Why? Because Haggai 2.5 asserts that the Lord's promise to the remnant of Judah to be with them corresponds to his promise to the Exodus generation when they departed from Egypt. So therefore, the Lord shook the stellar universe and the earth's atmosphere, the earth itself, and the various bodies of water, dry land, on behalf of the Exodus generation when he judged Egypt. He also did this when he gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai. So this prophetic, if you look at this slide on the board, this prophetic statement in Haggai 2.6 will be fulfilled, as we saw in this study of this verse, during the last three and a half years of the 70th week and the second advent of Christ, which terminates this particular week, this seven-year period. How do we know this? Well, it's indicated by the statement in verse 7 of Haggai chapter 2, which we just read asserts that the Lord will shake up all the nations and subsequently they will offer their treasures to him. Then they will fill this temple with glory. So this prophetic statement in Haggai 2.6 has never taken place in history. When has this happened in history? Never! But the Old Testament and the book of Revelation make clear that this will take place at Jesus' second advent. So the statement in Haggai 2.7 that the nations will offer their treasures to the Lord and he will fill his temple with glory will be fulfilled during Jesus Christ millennial reign, which immediately follows the second advent of Christ. You know, it's interesting, the writer of Hebrews, we pointed out when we studied this book, he quotes Haggai 2.6 in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26. And so, if you look at Hebrews, you don't have to go there, I'll, I'll, I'll flip you over there. Just look up on the board, and I'll, I'll put it up here for you. Hebrews chapter 12, and it's uh, verse 26 on the board. It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's why I say the stellar universe, the earth's atmosphere. Notice the heavens is plural, okay? So, if you look at this slide on the board, therefore, it's interesting, and this is applicable to us, because this was written to church-age believers like us. The writer of Hebrews is teaching in this passage that those who are in union with Jesus Christ, you and I, possess an unshakable kingdom that will endure God's judgments against all the creation and mankind and every living thing during the tribulation portion of the 70th week. So therefore, we look at, now look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 20 and 22, we'll close. Go back to Haggai, 
You're not, haven't left there, I hope. Haggai chapter 2, look at verse 20. Haggai 2.20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. Second time in the book he's saying this. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their ho drivers, horses, and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. And then he says in verse 23, messianic prophecy, on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, de declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord. It's a messianic prophecy. It's not about Zerubbabel, it's about Zerubbabel's descendant. All right, so as we close here, if you look on the board with me, we see that each of these five prophetic statements in Haggai 2.22 are a reference again to the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. Specifically, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ destroying the military capability of kingdoms of the nations during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Jesus Christ. And this act would express God's wrath or righteous, righteous indignation against these nations which have rebelled against him as a result of being deceived by the members of Satan's kingdom who have been unified in their purpose to oppose him from the Tower of Babel. Now, the, this interpretation of mine is indicated by the fact that the prophetic statement in verse 23 is messianic because it asserts, the Lord asserts, that he will make Zerubbabel his signet ring, for he has chosen him. And as we pointed out when we studied this verse, my servant is messianic, as it is in many Old Testament passages. So therefore, Haggai 2.23 indicates that the prophetic statements in verse 22 pertain to the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week and second advent, which not only brings an end to the 70th week, but also brings to end the times of the Gentiles that we're in now, which began with Nebuchadnezzar's threefold invasion of Judah in, in five, 605, 597, and 586 B.C. That's where we are in God's timetable, the times of the Gentiles. What does that mean? Gentile powers will rule the world. The millennial reign, it flip-flops. Only the Jews rule the world. They're the nation that's on top, the only superpower, because her king is a Jew, reigning from Jerusalem, and all the Gentile nations will flock to worship Jesus Christ, and if, to worship him. If they don't, guess what? You're not going to get any rain this year. Okay? So he will rule the nations with an iron rod, it says. Yeah, just, Jesus is not a pussycat, like people like to portray him, because my Bible says he ain't a pussycat. He's not Mary Poppins. He's coming to wage war against those who reject him, who he died for on the cross to, 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 to save them from his wrath in the lake of fire. They refuse, and so guess what? Any nation, including our own, that doesn't bow down to Jesus at that time, the second advent, will be destroyed. Okay? It will be destroyed. And the only way to avoid that wrath is through faith in Jesus Christ. So pray for your nation and its people and the people around the globe because that's good, what God wants us to do because he desires all people to be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this message will be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.